Good morning, you may have a seat. My name is Kylie Jo Flinner, and I serve as the FBC Kids Director. Um, and um, I'm also known as KJ to many of your kids. Today, I um, have the privilege of reading the scriptures in Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Thank you, Kylie Joe. Good morning. I was talking with one young man about the Harvest Festival. And uh, the topic was the container in which the candy will be collected. And finally, the decision was made based on the container options <clears throat> that he had considered. The only viable option for tomorrow's festivities will be a pillowcase. That is the only implement that will provide the necessary storage space for the harvest that will be celebrated. Good for him. Uh, I'd like to thank Seth's dad, David. He led this morning. Thank you for leading us. And uh, Seth, uh, Seth's voice wasn't 100% this morning. You know, you come down to find it there, and instead, here's a guitar, lead us in worship. And, and that's uh, fantastic. Thank you. We'll look forward to uh, having you at the end of the service as well. Uh, why don't you join me as we pray and ask God's help as we look at his word this morning. God, we thank you for your kindness to us and the joy it is to know you through Jesus. Our prayer is this morning, God, that you would uh, stir in our hearts by your spirit a conviction to know you, to set aside the agenda of our own heart and pursue yours first and foremost, and Lord, that you might move in us to believe that we would find in you reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, renewal, and a life with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Long time ago, there was a great emperor. He ruled a large and powerful nation, and he was planning to go to war. 
And as you would do on that occasion, he sought advice from his many advisors. All of his military advisors were telling him, you need to go into this battle because victory will result in great power and wealth for us when we conquer our enemies. So all of his advisors to a man told him he ought to go into this battle. There was one advisor, though, that told him he shouldn't go into battle. He said, the reward that we will gain is too small when we compare it with the risk we're taking. Not only that, I think your military advisors have underestimated the power of our enemy. So since the reward is too small and the risk is too great, I advise taking a pass on this particular battle. Nonetheless, the greater emperor listened to most of his advisors, went to war, and lost. His army returning defeated, his cost was great, his reward was nothing, and he brought in his advisors in order to figure out what went wrong. And all of them were going to be held accountable for providing this terrible advice. And he wanted to know why we went to war, when obviously now, looking back, we shouldn't have. And the advisor that con contradicted everyone was also called in to be held into account, and he was a little bit miffed. Because he had told him not to go to war, and had the emperor followed his advice, everything would still be fine. But he was called in among the same group to be held into an account. And finally, when it came to him as to what went wrong, he said, well, emperor, if you'll remember, I advised you not to go into battle. I told you the reward was too small and the risk was too great. What am I being held accountable for? And the emperor's answer was, you failed to convince me. It was your job to convince me. It's not my job to agree with you. It's your job to convince me. And after your description, I remained unconvinced. And you're being held accountable. Your, your job is to make, convince me, and you didn't. You should have. And this is how we approach things with God. Is He comes to us and tells us the truth. And we say, well, God, I appreciate that, but I am unconvinced. You're going to have to bring a little bit more to the table. And that's what this parable this morning is about. This story that Jesus tells is intended to contradict our rebellious hearts, which assumes that the person in control of the situation is the one who needs to be convinced, and, and we remain unconvinced. And the rich man and Lazarus illustrate for us not just how the wealthy and the poor operate, but how the human heart operates and how our heart of rebellion seeks to be convinced only of what it already wants. Unconvinced. First thing we're unconvinced of. We're unconvinced that things will ever change. We're things will always be the way that they are. We're unconvinced that things will ever change. Do you do any planning? Do you have a calendar? Do you have a calendar with things that are planned for the future? Maybe you have something in November called a Thanksgiving dinner. Maybe you have something in December called a Christmas Eve dinner or a Christmas Day brunch. Maybe you have a New Year's Eve party plan. Maybe you already have plans for a winter break to get out to somewhere warm once you know February hits. Maybe these things are calendared out. And you, ought to, you have to plan ahead for these some kinds of things. But what do we assume when we plan something for February that will be alive? Right? Aren't we assuming that? If you're making plans for, you, if you know between now and February that time to punch out, you're not going to make plans for February. 
That's the assumption that we're going to make. And, and what this reveals about us, of course, there's nothing wrong with making plans. We don't want to live in the darkness of our impending doom. But the reality is in our pride, in our arrogance, in our self-assuredness, in our short-sightedness, we assume things will always be the way things have always been. Things will go on as they always do. And, and in fact, we push the idea of things coming to an end as far away as possible and keep the idea of the end of our time as, as far distant as possible. We know it's there, but it will come long, long from now. And we pray that would be the case for all of us. But there will be a day that we will be like this rich man. Look at verses 19 and 20 of Luke chapter 16, there was a rich man clothed in purple, feasted. Uh, he had fine linen, and he feasted day after day. So he was wealthy. He had the most expensive clothes and the most comfortable clothes. And each and every day, there was a new a buffet brought before him that was delightful, where he could choose to eat all of it or none of it. And this was his daily experience. In contrast to that was a poor man named Lazarus. Notice in the parable, the rich man is unnamed. He's just the rich man. The poor man is Lazarus. That's intentional. It's intended to pique our interest because normally the rich man would be named and the poor man would be the nameless one. Jesus immediately at the start of the parable wants to let the, the hearer know this is a different kind of story than you're used to. The nameless, anonymous rich man and the named, important poor man. That. This poor man, verse 20, he was laid at the gate of this rich man. That word there for the gate of the rich man means it was a big gate. The bigger the gate, the bigger the house. The more important the person behind the gate and the house. And the fact that Lazarus was laid at the gate means what? He didn't walk there. Means on the daily, somebody had to deposit Lazarus at the gate. Why would Lazarus be left at the gate? Big gate, big house. We assume somebody has big bucks and maybe some leftovers. And, and so someone is thinking of Lazarus' best interest in the absence of government programs that might assist someone. He was instead left in a place he had the highest opportunity for maybe receiving something that would sustain him. So we have the rich man and the, and the poor man, Lazarus, and Lazarus is covered with sores. Immediately we think of a guy in the Bible named Job, don't we? Impoverished and covered with sores. Look at verse 21. It says, Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. It's gross. And it's unclean. Dogs were unclean animals, religiously. And so you have this contrast between the wealthy man and the poor man. And what's important to note is, since Lazarus was at the man's gate, what do we know about this man and this Lazarus? They had a relationship. Here is the context of their relationship. The man would leave his home and behold Lazarus, and he would do what? Nothing. Because Lazarus desired to be fed from the leftovers from his table, which tells us what? He wasn't. He wouldn't desire to be fed with the leftovers if he was being fed with the leftovers. And the way his meals are described, the wealthy man's meals were described, there were leftovers. 
He would have been presented with a buffet, and each day he would have chosen, oh, today I'll have the salmon, and uh, tomorrow I won't. I'll have the lamb. And whatever he didn't choose would certainly have been disposed of in some manner, but the, the manner in which it was disposed of for certain was not to provide any to Lazarus. Even though Lazarus could have been provided for by having zero effect on the rich man's experience of his life. Pay attention to that. That, that would have required no sacrifice. It would have required the rich man, instead of putting his food in the garbage, to put it in front of Lazarus. That's all it would have taken. But he didn't. It was a lack of compassion. What we need to understand, though, about the parable before you're getting too uptight, we'll save that for the end. Jesus here is not making a contrast between wealth and poverty. Jesus is making a contrast between two conditions of heart and how they experienced their particular situation. The issue with the wealthy man was not that he was wealthy. The issue was the way in which he engaged with Lazarus and his wealth revealed the condition of his heart. He was convinced there was no reason to do anything different. Why? Because things will always be the way they always will be. There will always be rich and there will always be poor. And I don't have to worry about it because death is a long ways away. Especially because I'm wealthy. He could afford security and he could afford food and the best of health care. And he knew at some point Lazarus would, would be gone. What this revealed, the contrast here is the spiritual condition of both Lazarus and the rich man. How do we know the spiritual condition is different? Because Jesus continues to tell the story. Even though the man is convinced that all things will remain the same and nothing will ever change, verse 22, all of a sudden, everything changes. What happens? The poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So the poor man dies. Lazarus, he dies. What did he die of? We don't know. We don't know how long this went on, but the poor man dies. And the Bible describes his death as one that is encountered and fostered by heaven itself. As he dies, God's holy angels carry him to Abraham's side. And this is a view of paradise. We have to understand something about how the people of the Scripture, in particular here the people of Israel, viewed what happens after you die. They did not believe that when you die, you end. The Bible teaches broadly. When you die, you continue living. The question is, will you experience a celebration and reward at God's side, or will you experience judgment? These are the only two options. And what's described of Lazarus tells us that he experiences the presence of God as illustrated by going to Abraham's side. Why is that? Because he had relationship with God, therefore he didn't experience judgment. We assume that he had relationship with God because the only way to go into reward after you die is if you have relationship with God through faith. And so we see this poor man, even though he had nothing, what's the one thing he had before he died? Faith in God. And that's what Jesus is trying to make clear. Having faith in God is what, it, what determines what happens when the time to go comes. Now, the wealthy man also passed away. Remember, everything changes. The rich man also died and was buried. Notice the different way of his death being described. When Lazarus died, what happened? Angels carried him away to his reward. When the wealthy man died, he was stuck in the ground. Verse 23, 
It gets worse. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So now we have this description of the after. He has this, this description of two men after they have passed. Both continue. One is experiencing reward at Abraham's side, and one is experiencing judgment. And Abraham is seen as this one, this father of the people of God, Israel, finally culminated in Christ. And, and Lazarus understands, of course, that now, that now that he is in paradise, everything has changed. There's this great reversal. Before death, who was enjoying their great reward? The wealthy man. Who was experiencing difficulty? Lazarus. But now, now that everything has changed, even though the wealthy man wanted to pretend like nothing ever would change, there's this great reversal. The one who has had his faith in God is experiencing reward, where the one who had his faith in his own things is experiencing judgment. Lazarus, of course, knows that everything has changed. The wealthy man, though, is acting like nothing has changed. What's he immediately do in judgment? He starts ordering Lazarus around, like he's the boss of Lazarus. Lazarus doesn't say anything through this entire parable. I wish he would have. I wish he would have said, get your own water. But Lazarus, as with all of us in paradise, we will be unconcerned with the affairs of those in judgment because we will be so enraptured with the presence of our God. Lazarus is, is unconcerned with what's going on over there because his primary concern is the enjoyment of his reward. Things change. Now that they have died, everything is reversed. The rich man in his life before his death did not account for the existence and power of God. However, Lazarus did. So then when the day of standing before the Lord came, Lazarus experienced reward, and the wealthy man experienced judgment. The wealthy man did not account for God. He put it out of sight, out of mind. I'll deal with that on that day. The same way this wealthy man has dealt with all the problems he has faced. When he, when he experiences a challenge in this life, it's going to be a matter of, what do I know? Who do I know? How do I pay it off? He has no idea that, that you don't deal with God that way. That you can't show up in the day of judgment and talk your way out of it. In order to be properly related to God in that day, you must deal with it here and now. Whereas Lazarus, in his poverty, even though his relationship with God isn't described, we know what his relationship with God was because he was in paradise. We know that Lazarus, in his poverty, depended deeply on God. We could imagine someone in his condition being placed next to the gate as the dogs wander over and say, snack time. Him seeking the Lord. Could you imagine in that time of great suffering, Lord, today maybe, just a wedge of stale bread? Just, just a wedge of maybe, Lord, the dogs will be preoccupied with somebody else today. You could imagine somebody in that kind of suffering seeking the Lord on an ongoing basis because of his great suffering, whereas the wealthy man in his delight of his own experience has no need of seeking God. 
at least in his mind. And then when the time comes for them to move from this life to the next, there's this reversal. The one who has depended on God finds himself in the presence of God. Jesus describes this in his little story here. Verse 25, Abraham said, child. Interesting word there. Abraham refers, refers to this man as his son, and that's on purpose in the story. What we know then about this man is he is a son of Abraham, a member of the nation of Israel. So what does this mean? Maybe this man was counting on when he moved from this life to the next to get him into the paradise. I'm a son of Abraham. So therefore, all sons of Abraham get into paradise. And what do we discover? That's not true. It has to do with your personal relationship with God. And this son of Abraham is, finds himself in judgment because he had no relationship with God. Uh, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus, in like manner, received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not and none may cross from there to us. So here we discover a couple of things that are important if you're going to meet the Lord. And by if, I say it's coming. Since you're going to meet the Lord, a couple of things to keep in mind. That relationship has to be settled before the day you meet the Lord. Secondly, whatever that relationship is, on the day you meet the Lord, it is permanent. There is no changing it on that day. The, the day to deal with that situation is when? Before that day. When is that day? Later, but it's closer now than it's ever been. There's this great chasm. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It's a familiar passage. This is what the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. It is appointed for man to die, and after that comes what? Judgment. That's the job. You're not dead yet. You haven't faced judgment yet. The experience we have before the Lord is determined by the relationship with we, we have with God now. And the wealthy man determined he wasn't worried about that day. He wasn't worried about the day of the Lord. Number one, I'm a son of Abraham, so I know I'm good. But he had no relationship with God. There's no planning for that day on that day. The, now is the time. What happens then is based on what we believe, what we trust, where we put our faith. Now, what we learn from the parable and what we learn from Hebrews chapter 9 is once we are there in that place on the other side... Things are fixed. Things are set. There's no changing it. It has to be determined. We have to figure that out today. Back to the story Jesus is telling in Luke chapter 16. Verse 25. In your lifetime you received good things, Lazarus in like manner, bad things. Something we discover about the experience of the things of this world is this. The man had good things. The good things did not keep him from paradise. His wealth did not keep him from paradise. His enjoyment of a buffet did not keep him from paradise. 
What kept him from enjoying paradise with God forever? His lack of relationship with the Lord. The challenge is, and we see this throughout the Bible, because he experienced such a comfort, his, his recognition of how much he needed God was lower. It doesn't mean he couldn't have recognized he needed God. It's just that he didn't. We might even say it this way, and this echoes something that we discover in the book of James. Lazarus, in his misery, was advantaged over the rich man in knowing God. Lazarus had an advantage in knowing God in this life. If the rich man was going to argue the argument, he should have done a better job or hired a better attorney. He should have said, Lord, why did you give me all that wealth? I would have gladly have given it up in order to know you instead of this misery. But that's not what he argued because he was unchanged. What we know is the wealthy man had no understanding of his need of God because he put his faith in the things of his life. Whereas Lazarus, in his suffering, had his need to trust the Lord front and center each and every day, whether he liked it or not. We might say it this way. This is what wisdom is. To live in light of eternity today. That's wisdom. Wisdom is, to, is today to say, I'm not, I'm not dead yet. Someday I, I will be, and I want to have that day squared away. And wisdom is today is to say, today, I want to live in light of the fact that one day I will stand before the Lord. Now, the, word, the Bible has a fancy phrase for this. It's not real fancy, but you're familiar with it. Here's the phrase the Bible uses to describe living today, knowing that one day I will stand before the Lord. Do you know what the phrase is? It's called the fear of the Lord. It's saying that day, as, as much as I know God is a God of grace and kindness and he is, he is God who gives, and He is God who redeems and forgives. As much as I know that, I also know this about God. He's really, really, really big. And He made everything. And one day I have to stand before Him, and He's going to say, so I'm going to need some reasons why we're good. And wisdom is saying, I'm going to live today knowing I want that conversation to be as straightforward and easy as possible. That's wisdom. Wisdom is saying, the day of the Lord will come one day. How should I live today with that day and the Lord in mind? Foolishness is living as though that day doesn't matter or it will never come or I'll deal with it on that day. That's foolishness. That's what the wealthy man did. Whereas Lazarus, in his misery, sought the Lord independence each day. The question the wealthy man could have asked himself is, how do I use my stuff with the Lord in mind. What's a simple way this man could have demonstrated that he had a fear of the Lord in his day? Instead of throwing his food in the garbage, give it to Lazarus. Give Lazarus a stick to beat the dogs away. Anything. Or give Lazarus a spot in the gate where dogs can't get to him. Maybe, just maybe, this guy will go crazy and go to Home Depot and buy one of those picnic tables for $115 and let Lazarus get off the ground. Maybe, now we're just going, now we're just nuts here. Maybe he hires a guy to go get Lazarus and bring him to his, his gate and sit him on his $115 picnic table with a stick in his hand. But now let's go crazy. Now we haven't, 
why doesn't he just have Lazarus come in the house? I mean, what's it going to do? What's he, because he smells. Okay, well, why don't we just give Lazarus a bath? Might help his sores. None of this. Knowing this guy's uh, existence, knowing this guy's gait, none of this would have imposed an even a, a smallest amount on his own life experience. He would have had to sacrifice nothing. He just would have had to care for Lazarus because he knows one day he will stand before the Lord. That's all. That's all. But we know he had no fear of the Lord, and so therefore no compassion on Lazarus. Unconvinced that things will ever change. And one thing we learned from this story that Jesus is telling, one thing he's trying to communicate to us, things will change one day. And we want to make sure things are taken care of. Now, okay, let's move to the second part of this. Since living in the light of the Lord assumes this, and I, I just mentioned this, if we're going to live as though the day of the Lord is a day that's actually coming and we should actually be concerned about how that day goes, we have to assume that that means something today might actually have to be different than I want it. That's the assumption. If I'm going to live as though the Lord is going to actually one day ask me about today, hey, let's talk about that one day. And we'll say, you know, is there any other day you want to talk about? Nope, that's the day. Since I'm going to maybe think about it, I want to live the way uh, uh, the Lord might consider right by faith because one day I'll have to stand before him. And I might even recognize that this would require maybe a significant change to how I live, right? Well, that being said, boy, I want to make sure this is actually true. Well, if I'm going to actually fundamentally change how I live my life, you, you know, this is the thing. If I'm going to say that there's a day of the Lord, and that means I might actually have to operate differently, have to have different priorities. Well, if you're smart, and I can tell you guys are all brilliant. I mean, you're here. You're brilliant. <laughs> Jason, why are you laughing at me? <laughs> said, we're all brilliant. The question is who's on the platform. All right, anyway. Now I get you. So, so we're going to live that. So if I'm going to have, if I'm going to change something, I'm not going to, this had better be real, right? I mean, I'm not going to go give him my stuff away for a fairy tale. I mean, do you hear me? This is what we have to understand. We're, the word is powerfully true. This man, along with many of us, are unconvinced that the word of God is powerfully true. The Word of God is powerfully true. Joshua chapter 4. This is one of my favorite places in the Bible in Joshua chapter 4. They had just crossed the Jordan River. You know the story? People of Israel are going to invade the Promised Land, and they're going to conquer Jericho, and they're crossing over the Jordan River to enter into the Promised Land with Joshua. Are you familiar with the story? If not, as I always say, there's an entire VeggieTales on it. So just Google it, and you'll get the whole thing. It involves slushies. After they had passed through the river, listen to what happens. Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you. He's talking to some leaders from each of the tribes. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. 
they stacked up a, a bunch of rocks. So when the kids walked by, they said, Dad, what's up with the pile of rocks? They said, all oh, those came out the middle of the river. We got those when the water was stopped. So a couple of things about these stones. Look at verse 5. Take up each of you a stone. Where did they take it up? On his shoulder. Why is that important? His big rocks. So the kid's going to know, number one, if you're going to make a pile of rocks, you want to use big rocks. Second thing, if you're going to make a pile of rocks from rocks you say you got out of the river, make it so you can't get them if there's a river there. How do you get that big rock out of a river if the water's still there? You can't. A stone that you carry on your shoulder, you don't dive into a river and pick up. You dive into a river, and now we got a recovery operation. Because these are big rocks. The only way these rocks, these river rocks, could have been gotten is how? If there was no river there. It's the only way. So when the kids say, hey, Dad, how do we get these rocks? Look at these rocks. These are incredible. Say, yeah, we stopped the river. It's cool. Why is this important? Because the river didn't stop every day. Once they crossed over and conquered the promised land, maybe they wanted to go back over to the other side. Some of the tribes lived on the other side. If you wanted to cross the Jordan River, you didn't stop and press a crosswalk and have the river stop. Like they do at that Universal Studios thing where the tram stops and it splits, right? No, you don't do it. You could stand there all day. When's it going to split? Never. You look at the pile of rocks and you say, God has the power to stop the river. He's not going to every day. But I will remember he is a river-stopping kind of God even though he's not doing it every day, and even though it's been 200 years since he did. It's to remind the people of Israel what God has the power to do and can do, and to affirm the important thing is the truth of what God is, is doing, not the experience. Here's what Joshua wanted the people of Israel to do. To look at the pile of rocks and have as much faith in God as the people who walked through the river. That's what they wanted. And the people of Israel, just like every people since, said, well, I'll believe God when, what? I walk through the river. And God says, all you get is a pile of rocks. That's what you get. You get a pile of rocks. It doesn't mean I can't do rivers. If I wanted to, I could. Our pride compels us to seek God's convincing, powerful experiences for us to believe. God just simply tells us the truth. To deny God's truth, that is, to deny God's word, is arrogant rebellion. God tells us the truth, and when we reject it, it's because we believe we know better than God. I'll believe you, God, when? God, you have to convince me. And God just tells us the truth. Look at verses 27 and 28 over in Luke 16. The rich man said, I beg you, Father, talking to Abraham, send him, that is, Lazarus, to my father's house. I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So now all of a sudden he has compassion. On who? His brothers, not Lazarus. What's, how motivated is Lazarus to go back there? Not. That was not a fun place for Lazarus. The rich man is happy to send him back to the land of sores and dogs. He has no compassion whatsoever on Lazarus. Pay attention. He has no compassion whatsoever. He's concerned about his arrogant, pompous, rebellious brothers, the ones just like him. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. What did he just tell them? They got their Bible. Tell them to read their Bible. Tell them to go to synagogue 
and hear the, the Bible read. Let them hear them. And, and here's what the guy says, just like us. He said, no, Father, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. No, Lord, I will believe if you get me a good parking spot. Lord, I will believe if this bill gets paid. Lord, I'll believe if my, uh, my brother-in-law finally agrees he's wrong. I'll believe when, and, and we put up to God all these things that if you do these convincing proofs, I will believe. God, it's your job to convince me. And God says, I gave you a Bible. I mean, do anybody here have a Bible? We got, we got 37 Bibles. We got a dozen Bibles at home we don't open because it's on our phone. We don't open the one on our phone either, but we don't... We, we got a Bible. We said, well, God, I won't believe if you give me your word. I'll believe if the river is parted. I'll believe if you give me a little more money, if I'm a little more healthier, if, if I get the promotion. I'll believe. Guess what? You won't. That's what this guy was told. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I know what I need. I determine what I need to be convinced the, the rich man here is still acting like Lazarus is an eyesore to be ignored. In his arrogance, he tells Father Abraham that more than the word of God is needed in order to bring salvation to the life of his brothers. God's plan, though, has always been to make himself known by simply telling us through the, the truth through his word. Redemption is known through the word of God. Uh, we're going to get there in about six years, but Luke 24 Jesus is walking with some disciples on the road to Emmaus. In verse 25, it says this. Jesus said to them, these two disciples, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? Was it necessary for Jesus to die, be raised from the dead, and enter his glory? Yes. How does Jesus tell them that was necessary? Verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things about himself. You, don't need, you, you actually don't need to see me, guys. You just need a Bible. And you'll know that the servant was to come and suffer and be raised from the dead. God just tells us the truth through his word. In rebellion, we reject his word and we want a magic show. In rebellion, we reject his word and want God to prove himself to us, not really because we want him to prove himself to us. We just want something from him. God just sends us his word. Let me read John chapter 1, 1 through 18. I think it's up on the screen. It might be. If not, it's okay. John chapter 1, 1 through 18. It's a long section, and uh, bear with me. <clears throat> In the beginning was the word. I should just let you in on a secret here. The word here in John chapter 1 is referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He, that is John, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. 
The true light, referring to Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of God is powerfully true, and the word of God from Genesis to Revelation tells us Jesus came to forgive sinners. Jesus came to forgive sinners, and he makes God's truth known to us. He tells us the truth. The rich man, in verses 30 and 31 of the story, admits that he believes more than the word of God is needed. Look at the response he gets from Abraham. Verse 31. If they, that is, the brothers, Abraham says, if your brothers do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham tells him the truth. If Lazarus rise from the dead and goes to your brother's house and knocks on your door, and they open the door and says, hey, my name is Lazarus. You recognize me? I'm the guy who sat at your brother's gate. I died. Your brother died. We both went to the other side. It's not going well for your bro. It's going well for me, except I'm here. You should do something different than your brother. You should believe instead of disbelieving. You should live as one who fears the Lord instead of in arrogance. And what would the brother say to Lazarus standing at his door? I gave it the office. Slam. If you won't believe the word of God, you won't believe if someone rises from the dead and stands in front of you. The rich man is convinced more than the word is needed, and he is wrong. Because in his rebellion, in our rejection of God's things, it's almost impossible to let go of our perception of what ought to be, the stuff, and instead hold on to God. What Jesus tells us in this story is this rich man's brothers would never hear his warning. It, Lazarus wasn't sent to his brothers, was he? No, the brothers didn't hear the warning. But here's what's fantastic. We did get to hear the warning. We get to hear the warning. The warning was issued, and Abraham makes it known to us. Here, here's the deal. Even if a, if a man was raised from the dead, will you believe? Will you heed, heed the warning? Was a rich man raised from the dead? Jesus was. Jesus was raised from the dead. The, the, the question is whether or not Jesus was is not a question. We understand this. Jesus was. The only real question is whether or not the guy raised from the dead. We know Jesus existed. 
We know Jesus died. The question is not whether or not he lived or died. This is an academic reality. The question is, did he raise from the dead? We have no reason whatsoever to believe he didn't. It's just simply hundreds of people saw him after his death. And not as a body, walking around eating food. So Jesus is raised from the dead. So therefore the question is, will we believe what the word tells us? The word just simply tells us the truth. A man is raised from the dead, which gives us hope of relationship with God forever. Or we will be like the rich man, unconvinced that things will ever change, change, and unconvinced that the word of God is powerfully true. Three things, then we'll close. For those of us who are planners, remember we planned for um, the future. I hope we all make it to wherever our plans go. Right? I don't. That's good. Question is, is a real silly question, but here it is. Have you planned for the, fu- for the forever future? Have you planned for it? It's a real simple thing. Have you planned for the day you have to stand before the Lord and give account for your life? Things that don't make you right for, with God. Here's a list of things that will not make you right before God. Are you ready? Good deeds will not make you right before God. If you're really, really good, it won't work. Your really, really good stuff is lame. Other things that won't make you right before God. Avoiding really bad deeds. Congratulations, you haven't murdered anybody. What do you want, a medal? I mean, that's a, what, what's the thing? I, was, I still find this ridiculous. Well, I'm not Hitler. Is that your, really? Oh, congratulations, I guess, for not being Hitler? Well, I don't have to be Mother Teresa, do I? Doesn't matter. You can be Mother Teresa. Your good deeds won't get you in. Your avoiding really bad deeds won't. Coming from the right family won't get you in. Well, my mom and dad were, of course, they dragged me to church every day and they prayed before meals, so I figure I kind of got a family pass. There's no family pass. Going to the right church won't get you in. There's only one thing that makes you right with God. Admitting you have rebelled against him in your sin and getting your sins forgiven by trusting Jesus. That's it. You're going to stand before the Lord, and he's going to say, why in the world should I let you into paradise? I said, my answer ought to be, and your answer ought to be. I have no idea why, but check with Jesus. That's it. I I think you paid my ticket. Can I get in? And what's the answer? Get in here. That's the only way to be made right before God, to admit you've sinned against him and get forgiven by trusting Jesus. Okay, second thing. Was that two things? I'll decide how many things. <laughs> what do you think the Bible is for? List of rules? A couple of rules in there, some lists in there. You know, most of it's not a list of rules. Anyway, maybe that's what you think it is for. That's not what it's for. It's not a list of rules. Maybe it's a set of moral codes. Maybe it's a set of moral codes. I don't know what kind of morals you're going to get out of that, but it's not a set of moral codes either. It's got some morals in it. It's got some values in it. it. Describes for us what righteousness is, but that's not what the Bible is for. What's the Bible for? The Bible is there to tell us what's real, what's true. The Bible tells us what things are, are really like. What is real? God made everything. If it is, God made it. If it isn't, God didn't make it. But if it is a thing, pick a thing. That little fish at the bottom of the ocean that nobody's seen, that's got a glowy thing sticking out its head. I've only seen it in Nemo. (laughs) 
That whole thing only is because God, one day we're sitting around, let's make a fish with a lure. Blow their minds when they find that thing. So God made everything. Second thing, God's in charge of everything. Why? Because he made it all. Since God created everything, and since God is really, really good, and since God is really, really kind, this is what the Bible tells us. The way we can experience the most care, the way we can experience the most contentedness and satisfaction, the way we can experience the most hope, the way we can experience the most fullness is when we find our life bound up with God himself. That's what the Bible tells us. And we have been convinced at some point I experience contentedness and hopefulness and satisfaction when I am separated from God, when I can have it my way. And the Bible says, no, 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 you're wrong. You have no idea what you're talking about. You experience the most hope, the most contentedness, the most satisfaction, the most hope when your life is bound up with God himself through faith in Jesus. A meaningful, personal relationship with God through Jesus is the only way to experience closeness and satisfaction with God here, and it's the only way to experience that on the day we stand before the Lord. Okay, last one, and then we're done. Every now and then, things don't go the way we want. Every now and then, things don't go the way we want, and sometimes we call that suffering. We may not have dogs licking our sores, and we may not be starving to death, but we have enough things going on in our life that we would describe it as suffering. If you have not experienced suffering, wait a little bit. Here's one thing we might want to think about from the Word of God. One of the gifts that suffering gives us is a great opportunity and a great openness for significant dependence on the Lord. One of the things... That suffering gives us is a great openness to just depend on God. That He is the Lord of our hope. Many of us have found that when we face difficulties of significant or insignificant difficulties, suddenly we have this deep desire to seek the Lord in prayer and we have a deep fervency of devotion to God. Sometimes during suffering, coming to church is more powerful than during times where things are fine. We are more moved by the power of God's word in our devotional life when we are seeking hope from God because we need it. And then when things are okay, it seems like our desire for devotional connection with God can fade. So while none of us would hope for suffering or wish suffering on anyone, when that time comes, one of the things we can do is lean into a deeper devotion to the Lord and a deeper, deeper fervency of prayer in seeking the Lord in communion. It doesn't mean the suffering will go away. What it means, though, is we can fully capitalize on the challenges we faced. We see that in the life of Lazarus. And maybe, like Lazarus, we don't experience deliverance this side of glory, but one day everything will be reversed, won't it? What does it say in the end of the book? I know, I've read how the book ends. Every tear is wiped away, isn't it? That'll be a good day. Pain will be no more. Death will be no more. Unconvinced, the wealthy man. I don't want anybody here to be that. Unconvinced that things will ever change. And unconvinced that the word of God is powerfully true. Things will change one day. And since God's word is powerfully true, trust Jesus. 
God, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Jesus. We thank you that you are willing to tell us a story such as this one. That you would be willing to maybe even offend us and make us a little bit worried about what things are like next for us in the hope that each of us would take time to take stock in our relationship with you. So God, I pray in this moment right here that each person here would take just a minute right now and ask themselves that question. When I stand before the Lord, is everything going to be okay? And Lord, I would ask in this moment, if some are here right now and they aren't sure what the answer to that is, I would pray even in this moment of quiet prayer, they would trust Jesus for forgiveness. A simple act in our hearts and our minds of admitting that we have rebelled against you and we need your forgiveness and that what Jesus did on the cross paid our debt. I pray, Lord, that there wouldn't be a single person that would leave this room today without an assurance that because of Jesus, the day we stand before you will be a day of celebration and joy. God, we thank you for Jesus, and we can't wait till you return. And we pray, God, that between now and then when things get hard, and suffering and pain comes our way, that you would give us the privilege of leaning hard into you in prayer and devotion, that you would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song?